Hi, hi, Rudy. How are you? I'm great, thank you. And uh, I am joined by. Uh, well, I was told to say that you are the coolest person ever. Yes. <laughs> and you are Mallory. Hey, <laughs> and you're Rooker, also one of the coolest people ever. Thank you. Just one off. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> the reason why we are talking right now is a film called The Last Duo, which is a film from this year. It's actually in theaters now. And uh, a lot of the topic is about the high Middle Ages in France. Mm-hmm. And uh, it turns out that uh, here on the podcast, just like we had a series about ancient Rome, we're starting to get kind of a series about the Middle Ages. And if that's a real series, then I suppose the earliest episode was the one about King Arthur, which is where, according to our interpretation, uh, we are then at the time where the Romans are just leaving Britain. So this is the beginning of the Middle Ages, isn't it? Like the Roman uh, times end. Mm -hmm. And then one of the people trying to hold the fortress for Roman civilization was then supposedly King Arthur. Okay, fast forward a little bit. And, uh, well, King Arthur wasn't really all that successful in holding the fort because more and more of these uh, Saxons were coming into Britain. And that also meant that the British Isles were uh, kind of joining the North Germanic cultural sphere including the stories that they were telling each other such as the story of beowulf so that's another one of our podcast episodes mm. and then fast forward a little bit more at least north germanic tribes are starting to become vikings which was just a job where you got on a boat and you went somewhere and, and started went on a vacation to, exactly and started to harass the people that you encountered <laughs> that was the job uh, but that moment of the Viking expansion is kind of relevant for the context that we're arriving at here because the Viking expansion also led to their settlement of Normandy in France. Yeah. And then within a few generations, those Normans, so they're, they're kind of like Frenchified Vikings, then end up conquering Britain. So then... Uh, We've gone from a Romano-Britain to a Saxon-Britain to an Anglo-Saxon kind of Britain with a Norman uh, elite. Mm -hmm. And the uh, elite introduced things such as more elaborate feudalism. And uh, that, of course, meant uh, wealth uh, accumulation at the top. And then who stepped in to steal from the top and give to the poor? That's Robin Hood. So that is the, our fourth episode yes. uh, in, the, in the medieval series. And, and Robin Hood is also kind of relevant for starters. Now Britain has kind of assumed the, the shape that it is going to have also in the time period we're talking about today. But also uh, Robin Hood is, of course, the great example of using the longbow and... Uh, those longbows became very important also on the battlefield of the Hundred Years' War. Yes. And the Hundred Years' War, uh, we've also reviewed a little bit in an episode about the film The King, mm -hmm. which is basically the lead up to the Battle of Agincourt, which uh, was one of those battles where the British, or the English, I should say, were victorious also thanks to their longbows. Uh, so that's kind of the English uh, timeline. Now, to bring it all together, we also kind of have to look at what happened in uh, France. So uh, just like when the uh, Romans pulled out of Britain, 
they of course also pulled out of France and there too there was kind of a, a Romano Gaul type of guy called Siagrius who uh, tried to maintain uh, the civilization locally uh, that didn't really work so well because at some point he was just replaced by Clovis mm-hmm. the first king supposedly of what is going to become f- France uh, and what's important about him is that he uh, converted to Catholicism. So mm-hmm. Francia is allied and aligned with Rome and Catholic. <laughs> uh, and they also set up a couple of things that uh, become important down the lines. So one of them is obviously this feudalism. So now we're no longer talking about states where basically everybody is a citizen of the state. And look, some might be more equal than others, but under the Romans, even the emperor was the, the primus inter pares, right? He was just a servant of the state, except very powerful. Um, and with this feudalism, there's not really a state. There's just like the big guy, and then there's kind of smaller guys below him, and then smaller ones below him, and so on and so on. So that's one thing that really changed. Uh, another was that they also put it all in a legal framework called the Salic law or the Salian law, which Mm -hmm. has all sorts of interesting terms, which I'm sure we're going to refer to shortly. Um, And I guess a a third thing that's kind of important for the Hundred Years' War is that at that time they started anointing the French kings with the sacred oil that was uh, (laughs) kept in Reims. Uh, which is a city kind of to the northeast of Paris. So then at this time, the Merovingian kingdom is really just kind of a rump state in the north of France, kind of the southernmost extent is Orléans, if you care to look on the map, so a bit to the south of Paris and it's a bit to the north. It's it's not, it doesn't look like France at all at that point. So that's the Merovingians. Fast forward a little bit, and then uh, uh, another big guy uh, enters the stage, Charlemagne, Charles the Great. Yes, Charlemagne. Charles the Great. So he is the uh, he is the founder of the second race of the kings, according to the French. So the first were the Merovingians, the second were the Carolingians, uh, and then at some point he uh, that lineage is um, uh, supplanted by the uh, descendants of uh, Hugh Capet or Hugh Capet mm-hmm. or whatever of the Capetians, which is the yes. third race of the kings. And that's basically all the way from, you know, uh, around the year thousand to the last kings of France. They were all basically Capetians, except then in different branches. So the way this kind of worked is that according to the, the Lex Salica, according to this Salic law, the crown is passed on to the oldest son on the male side or on the what they call the spear side. If you're a Freudian, you understand immediately <laughs> why it's called that. Um, yes. And if there's not the oldest son, is no longer that lineage is no longer available, then the, uh, the crown passes to maybe uh, younger brothers, which then are called cadet branches. Mm-hmm. And so, for example, the House of Valois, was the then the kings who ascended to the throne, uh, much to the dismay of the English, which was basically why the Hundred Years' War started. And then once the Valois had uh, died out, it was the uh, Bourbons, which was also all these Louis guys who eventually right. ended on the on the chopping block. 
in the French Revolution. Those are all Bourbons. Mm -hmm. And the same kind of happened in the, in the English uh, royal family, right? So you, there you also had these cadet branches, such as the House of Lancaster and the House of York of the Wars of the Roses. It's kind of similar thing. Boom. Anyway, so then uh, by the time that the film is uh, set, the whole of society is basically organized along feudal lines and along these lines of inheritance. And, for example, the whole problem of the Hundred Years' War was that there was a conflict between these mm -hmm. the rules and just the facts on the ground. Like, the rules were, uh, well, in the French monarchy... Uh, you know, you want to have this agnatic inheritance, is what it's called, and uh, otherwise it might go to a younger brother. But what had happened meanwhile was that one of the vassals of the French king, the Duke of Normandy, mm -hmm. had also become the king of England. So then that's not a vassal, obviously, that is also a king. Um, and uh, the king of England thought that by his rules, which were a little different, he should also be the king of France. Right. Yeah, uh, because actually in uh, in England they were very progressive in that they, it also could go through the female line. Uh, and that had happened a couple of times. And they thought that, you know, by their rules, uh, the, the kings of England by now were actually closer to uh, the previous line. So they should have the throne. Actually, you know, mm. as we're entering into the narrative of the Hundred Years' War, which starts in 1339. Charles V is the king at this time, and he pretty much fights tooth and nail throughout his whole entire career just to keep, like, the British at bay. Mm -hmm. But he dies rather suddenly um, and leaves behind only one heir, who is Charles VI, who's going to oversee this trial by combat. But he does well, I think. Uh, he, he does a really good job, um, Charles V does, of at least setting up what could be seen as successful. So hopefully um, Charles VI doesn't screw this up. Like we all know he's probably going to. <laughs> so yeah, go Charles. <laughs> mm -hmm. But um, I think it, it, that's a really good jumping off point. So we've set the stage and I guess now we should uh, move to the film. So we both watched The Last Duel. There is only one question that matters. Do you swear on your life that what you say is true? My father told me my life would be blessed with good fortune. I'm married. I was a good wife. judged and shamed by my country. I say before all of you, I spoke the truth. A most unspeakable charge has been brought against you. Jacques Legree entered our home. He attacked me. The accusation is false. I am telling the truth. The truth does not matter. There is only the power of men. This should be settled quietly. 
remain innocent! I request a duel to the death. If you lose, your wife will suffer dire consequences. One of us has lied. Let us let God decide. You do not believe me. I am risking my life for you. You are risking my life so you can save your bride. that you are to be burned alive. I will not be silent. Yeah, I think it's uh, I think we both agree that this is a much better film than it's getting credits for and that it should do better at the box office. Yeah. So the really short, the plot is that uh, in the time whose context we just explained, uh, there are three main protagonists. There is uh, Matt Damon in the role of mm -hmm. Sir Jean de Carouge. There's Adam Driver as Jacques Legris. And then there's Jodie Comer uh, who plays uh, Marguerite de Carouge. And the, the central conflict is that she, Marguerite, uh, accuses Jacques, who used to be the friend of Matt Damon. He has raped her when uh, Jean de Carouge was away on a trip. And uh, what was very unusual for the time is that she maintained the accusation. Really, it did happen. I don't care if there's mm -hmm. evidence or not, he did it. And then to get out of that he said, she said uh, situation, the uh, solution in the eyes of Matt Damon is to challenge Adam Driver to the duel. Mm -hmm. But then uh, the film is very well made, just like the book, in that the events leading up to the duel are shown in the film in three chapters through the eyes of mm -hmm. the three protagonists, starting out with uh, Jean de Carouge then Jacques Legris, and finally the chapter, which is actually also called The Truth, uh, the chapter uh, by Marguerite de Carouge. Yes. Uh, and we figured that as a structure for today's episode, we want to also follow that. So we're going to look at uh, the th three protagonists, starting with Sir Jean de Carouge. Matt Damon. I had to say, had to do it. <laughs> Matt Damon. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm so glad I'm not the other one. Right, and uh, and one of the tensions uh, in the film and in the social conflict that is also being shown here is that although he's a knight, yeah. uh, he's kind of a bumpkin. <laughs> so right, like he cannot write. His one main skill is that he's uh, pretty courageous, or maybe a little bit stupid also in battle. So he's fought a mm -hmm. lot for his, his lords and uh, he became knighted in the process. But he's, yeah, otherwise he doesn't have a lot of skills. And he is uh, also displayed in the film um, as, uh, uh, I guess maybe some people need to Google that, Theo Vaughn, mm -hmm. <laughs> the, the sort of podcaster, stand-up comedian. So, it, so, you know, Matt Damon has a mullet and kind of like this this chin strap beard going on and like he looks like you know a knight oh. from Alabama or something and and that's kind of intentional i think in Definitely. in the film like they they want to show him as less sophisticated and he still believes in this old like chivalry 
and yeah. all that kind of notion. And for example, they, he therefore also probably really believes at some level that this kind of trial uh, by combat, that that is like just, that's yeah. a just thing to do. There's a, there's a conflict and, you know, in a world where God governs everything, uh, you know, if there's a mano a mano battle, then the guy who wins has God on his side, obviously. Mm-hmm. So therefore, it's a just trial. Ta-da! Yeah. <laughs> and, but what's kind of convenient for him is also that he probably knows that he's a little bit stronger mm-hmm. <laughs> than Jacques Legree. So this was also kind of a, a risk worth taking because he was starting to get really annoyed with Jacques anyway, and this would be a good way to take him uh, down. I also think too that, like um, the the like you're saying, I think the bumpkin setup is very intentional because he and his house they're really only known for two things, and that's being incredibly loyal to whatever French king is ruling at the time, and for being really good at killing the right people, yeah. or, or being a bit like hot headed too. Um, there were several battles that he was mm-hmm. involved in. Uh, that jeopardized not so much like I guess the people's lives in the sense of people would have died and like you know great losses would have happened, but because um, I guess the the conquest system was its own business in its own right, and he would make very very poor decisions as a businessman, um, where he's like, oh, I'm just gonna mm-hmm. go fight with all my forces and all my might, and they're like, yeah, well, we also have six more months of this, so. Now we need to buy new spears. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Sean. Yeah. <laughs> you know, thanks to Carouge. So he's not very adept um, when it comes to, I guess, like you're saying, what the other duties of a French lord, which is to be a good manager and to be charming. Mm-hmm. And he's not very good at that. I, I also got from no. maybe like the film too that they played him a bit gruffer. But he, like you're saying, he believes in kind of the the ideology of the time, like wholeheartedly. He he really feels mm-hmm. that he's in the right. That he, if he stands by his word and um, by by his creed as a knight, you know, he's kind of protected in a way and given like mm-hmm. uh, value yeah. to in his belief. Matt Damon plays him very um, almost bitter you know, very gruff. And mm-hmm. I, I have to try and, like, yeah. comp- uh, compensate that with the historical account of what seems to be a very um, patient man, but very simple, like you're saying, easily mm. kind of taken advantage of because of their loyalty. His fate is on the rise. He's doing very well in the 1360s um, and into the 1370s. He actually marries very well. He has a son who um, we should say at the time, because they were so close in their friendship, Jacques Legree was the godfather too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Then everything starts to go downhill um, as we approach the 1380s. And not just for de Caru, but like for France as a whole. They kind of go through this depression, it looks like. Yeah. Um, and his father passes away, uh, his wife passes away, and then his son passes away. So, uh, beginning of the decade, he's doing great. End of the decade, not so much. And his resentment's building too, because as he's kind of going through these tribulations, and like we said, he's a very religious man, and he's kind of simple, 
-hmm. You have mm -hmm. um, his counterpart, his his rival, Jacques Legree, make his ascension, and he starts to become more popular in court. Yeah. He starts getting the better lands, getting the better contracts, and it, it kind of sets them up. Uh, Jean feels like passed over mm -hmm. a bunch of times, right? He thinks he is owed a bunch of things that then don't materialize. Uh, so firstly, he uh, gets married to Marguerite, and he just thinks, well, by the uh, you know ancient uh, uh, privileges of dowries and and inheritances, she is owed like a certain plot of land should end up in the dowry. Mm -hmm. But actually, there's also just normal the buying and selling of land, <laughs> and and you know their counts, their their top level dude can can do that as he pleases because feudalism is in in the end about parceling out land, and so then that piece of land which he thinks is owed them as a couple uh, just is passed on to Jacques. So there there he's he's passed uh, passed over and already he doesn't like that. Yeah, and then. Actually, as kind of as a result of that, he's also passed over as the uh, the boss of kind of like a garrison, and uh, because he had tried to sue the count, <laughs> essentially <laughs> as a punishment, he he doesn't get that either. So he's like he's pissed, right? And that the part of this is really these ancient kind of the rules, and part of it is also recognizable in the sense of, you know, multiple, like, colleagues within the same larger enterprise, right? right. Jean and Jacques start out both as squires, so that's really, like, low level within the organization, and uh, Jean, Matt Damon, uh, is promoted to knight, so by the, by the ancient rules, that is, of course, more honorable than being a squire, mm -hmm. but Jacques is just more like a, a modern man who can read and write and do maths, and so he helps the count with just tax collecting, essentially. And it's like he's just better at the office politics. So even though the job title has really improved for Jacques, just in terms of his income and his, his power, he uh, has won over Jean, who then, of course, feels wronged because the old rules no longer apply. Exactly. Yeah, he's he's not too like pleased by that. He He's not actually too pleased because... It's like mm -hmm. literally the old ways are dying out. In 1367, I believe, um, his old count, his old boss dies, mm -hmm. uh, Robert de Perche. And who replaces him is uh, Ben, ben Affleck. Affleck. <laughs> 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 now, he's a really interesting guy. And I think that if if we can ascribe like a almost like a true, you know, like villain, you know, if we're going to like personify the system, mm -hmm. it's personified by Pierre de Alessand. He, he's a very uh, petty man, uh, but he's also yeah. one of the most powerful and one of the richest barons in all of France. And he mm -hmm. also happens to be cousin to uh, Charles V. Jean really pisses him off by suing him. And yeah. um, as recompense, he says, I know your dad's dead, so uh, you're not going to be captain. You're not living in Belém, which is his childhood home, basically. By the way, yeah. your mom has a month to move out. So yeah. uh, so he, he tries to get back in by marrying Marguerite, whose father um, had done a deal with Pierre of Alessandre before he married her. So the land was already bought and sold for. Um, Jean's just dumb 
as a bag of rocks and <laughs> marries what he thinks is this very um, auspicious, uh, very prestigious uh, dowry uh, for his lands. And he's, he's just so broke at this point because he's still a squire. Um, he won't be made a knight until 1380. How did you view, like, in the movie, um, his his point of view, you know, his account of, of what happened, of the story? Well, very naive. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, he is, he is somebody who's basically losing the grip on a changing situation as well also in the wider historical context like at the start of the hundred years war it, the local feudal lords were very strong uh, and and as the war progresses and as that period kind of moves forwards it becomes a bit more meritocratic mm-hmm. in some way uh, so this starts to happen for example also in the sense that the knights, which at the start of the Hundred Years' War were just like, uh, I don't know, the just the tanks of the time, right? just knights in shining armor, unbeatable. And then gradually, uh, over the course of the High Middle Ages, it turns out that just normal, regular people just... <laughs> It's just uh, can, for example, firstly, like French knights' armies had had their ass handed to them at the uh, Battle of the Golden Spores mm-hmm. in in Belgium, right? Because oh, Belgium right. was kind of developing as more of an economic powerhouse, weaving cloth out of English wool. Yes, and so the citizenry got stronger, and the citizenry decided to buy a ton of bikes and train themselves as pikemen. And okay, they kick the ass of the French knights. The Battle of Poitiers was one where English longbowmen mm-hmm. uh, just annihilated French knights. It's and rough. Uh, the Battle of uh, Crécy also uh, was another one where, where these French knights' armies went down uh, uh, against the arrows. So just at the battlefield, that's changing. Uh, economically, it's changing also because after the Black Death, which was like 1348 and the years thereafter, mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, of course, the, the European population had reduced so much that laborers were in a slightly better negotiating position. So there was more like wealth being accumulated by the citizenry. So just the, the old, you know, the old order of the nobility was coming to an end. And by the time the war ends, it's 1453, which is basically the end of the Middle Ages, right? That's the year also that Constantinople falls. And then we're in the Renaissance. And mm-hmm. then this whole old stuff has ended. And Jean cannot move with the times, whereas Jacques, Jacques Le Gris, he can. He can. Like he, he, he's got more skills. He can read even Latin poetry. And he thinks of himself as kind of a man about town mm-hmm. with, with dashing cool hair. And he can just kind of like work his way up by his merits in, into the, you know, the hierarchy of, of the local count. Um, so I guess maybe that's the segue to, to look at, at his perspective in contrast. Sure. I, I think the, the story proper does a good job of splitting it up into three chapters because we move from a very removed, a very sheltered, a very, like you were saying, a naive carouche to like the situation. Now you're being brought in to the perspective proper because mm-hmm. as we build up to what will be the case, only two people know what happened, you know? And so you get this very complex look at, um, 
at the society and his perspective Mm -hmm. was like the most useful and for me at least like it showed you um the other side of of what nobility looked like so with Mm -hmm. Kaurouj you know he's he's good he's a good worker but he's not cool you know I wouldn't Mm -hmm. I would not invite him to my French orgy you know like (laughs) how are we gonna how are we gonna read the parties of the of the count yeah they looked looked, uh, fantastic yeah uh just uh, so everybody uh spoiler alert there's a like there's scenes about court let's just call him that but like um (laughs) yeah he's just not cool he's not he can't he doesn't like to drink he doesn't like to cheat on his wife. Yeah, this is a great point. Uh, yeah, because that time was also the time of the sort of the myth of the courtly love. Mm-hmm. And Jean kind of believes in that. And in his point of view, uh, when he first meets Marguerite, it's love at first sight, yeah, and kind of romantic. And then when those meetings are shown through the other eyes, it's just it's more just a regular meeting. <laughs> it's just like a <laughs> right? business transaction. The way that they interact with their lord, it's almost that's in itself like a marriage, you know, mm-hmm. where yeah. you have Jean Jean de Carreau embodies the medieval virtues of the time. Mm-hmm. He's loyal. Um, yeah. he, he pays his taxes on time and mm-hmm. he does his duty by his king. Jacques Legree also does that, but it's in a completely different function and it's more like what we were thinking of where it's like the emergence of this like meritocracy but also through like office duties office politics so they they're both believing in the same myth but it's it's a different um it's a different perspective i don't like i I know that's kind of a yeah yeah. it's like well yeah and what's what's done really well in the film is that each of their perspectives are in very subtle ways mm-hmm. shown very nicely. Like every every human being uh, kind of narratizes their own experiences in a way that's a little bit flattering, probably for yourself. Yeah, and and that's 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 shown really nicely in a, in a couple of scenes. For example, there's the battle scene where in the memory of Jean. He just like he leads the charge and what a hero. He and saves the green. Through, yeah, yeah, exactly. He's awesome. And then in in the recollection of Jacques Legris, Jean actually charged too early, <laughs> shouldn't have done that. And he goes after him because if he was just on his own, that would be dangerous. So now we have to follow him. And now he's the good guy, right? So yeah, essentially you have like he views Legree as this like conniving you know, like, mm-hmm. pernicious, like, snake-like figure. However, Legree has equally, you uh, know, a, a critical view of, uh, of De Carreau's as this hothead, mm. as a... Um, Impulsive uh, yeah, kind of guy. fiery, yeah. you know, just uncontrollable. Yeah. And to know that, like, these two men would have sigils and have lives mm. yeah. and have, like, courses so closely paralleling one another... I can't help but like kind of think that, you know, it, it's one of those great stories where you can tell that these two men are just on a collision course, you know, that no matter how many times they'll apologize to one another or make up, it's just going to steadily move it closer. These two are being pushed, I b- believe, into um, a, an impossible situation, which is like... Yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah I, and... Uh... If you look at the first the land deal in the dowry and then being the captain of the garrison, 
these are both disputes over property and I guess things really come to a head when th the third piece of property enters the picture, which is the introduction of Marguerite yeah. and, and her being introduced to, to Jacques Legris. And what did you what did you think about how that was portrayed? Just also with the little kiss, where they, that was supposed to be kind of platonic. And yeah, well, uh, what's your yeah, what's your take on how that was shown? I I don't know. See, the, the whole thing with Legree's version, it's very interesting to me because no matter what story he's telling me, I can still see the truth coming through. You know, so it's like yeah. when they kiss, there's a moment and he takes that as like sexual hesitation or anticipation. Yeah. He thinks it's erotic. It's, yeah. it's kind of shown in that way. Yeah. Yeah. But the way she kisses him, I think like physically, I think it must be the same shot, you know, it's just like his yeah. eyes and her eyes versus, but when yeah. I, when I viewed it from Marguerite's point of view, which is the truth, that's it. That's what yeah. it's been proponented as. So spoiler alert, Marguerite's telling the truth. Um, mm -hmm. You you really see like she's in a pretty stable position, I would think, politically. Um, the way I viewed it is like when in this society you're married to your husband, it, it it's quite taken quite literally. You're not you're not two people anymore. You're one person. You're a unit. So yeah. I can see like from her point of view, it's like. I need to do this because it's best for my house, you know, yes. and yeah. there's a better chance of us getting certain entitlements back that we're owed. If I perform this, yeah. you know, this custom, it's got part of the duty in this business that we're now running within this lighter hierarchy. And it has no erotic well, connotations or anything. It's just like, this is what we do now. Uh, it's like what you're saying. I think it's supposed to be like this chase, you know, totally removed from any kind of eroticism it's supposed to be pure like christ you know it's like make room no. for jesus in this kiss you know <laughs> but no. i think with what we're talking about with pierre de alenson and legree you have these two men who have fetishized and who have eroticized the rituals yeah. of their time because yeah. they can you know they have that yeah. they have that privilege they have that affordance to them or um, as yeah. as Jaeger puts it, um, liberties. So yeah. it goes back to what we were talking about, the rules and how it really plays out. So it's like the rules are that no one's supposed to be doing this. There is supposed to be no sexuality. And yet yeah. the, the wealth and the power of Pierre and Legree, it they're allowed to take those liberties and yeah yeah, yeah. this is also the time of uh, de Camerone, for mm -hmm. example right yeah I so, think this, so this kind of this undercurrent of the libertines who are a bit at the top of society yes. they they can get away with more because they're privileged yeah I that, that was an aspect of the time yeah and i definitely got that from the film too also too from the book i couldn't help but like kind of be a little bit conspiratorial with legree mm -hmm. and pierre and that's in so much that it's almost it almost seemed to me like the feudal Jeffrey Epstein, you know, like mm, this yes. is yeah, this yeah, is yeah. this is what this is what goes down. This is what's always gone down, kind of thing. And you you take care to see like how um some of the periphery characters treat that. So you have like um Decarouge's mother, Nicole Decarouge, 
um, mm-hmm. who's really pissed that her son uh, said something to to the count. You know, she's really yeah. mad at him about that. And she's yeah. like, oh, you idiot. You just don't understand. And she's mad at Marguerite, too. You know, it's just like this just happens and you have to accept it. Right. Yeah. So you have this like rise of this new uh, night, so to say, this meritus yeah. night. And in combination with this very powerful lord, they're able to skew, uh, let's say, yeah. the 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 language of of the law of the land, you know. And and yeah, it's it's really scary. It really yeah. it really scared me. Yeah, it was terrifying. For me, much worse than the duel is is what I thought was the most stomach-turning scene, which is the rape. Yeah. And the way in which Jacques Legris tells it to himself. Yes. What was your take on it? So, like, I thought it was very manipulative how it was edited and shown. And, and yeah, what, what did you think? From Legree's perspective, he presents himself to be, like, more earnest. Yes. You know, in the sense where he's like, I really love you. But, like, no matter what you're being shown in Legree's perspective, there's something that, like, breaks through, you know, the lie mm-hmm. that he's telling himself because, like, they're in the room. The same words happen. The same, like, actions yeah. happen. Except, like, there's just this, like, really great thing Ridley Scott does with the camera and how he films Jodie Comer, where it's just, like, her voice is not pitched as, like... Yeah. Like, also, the sounds that she makes... Uh, I mean, I, I guess I'm just wondering if you saw and heard that in the same way, but I got no, I the did. impression that in the Legree version... He still raped her. Like, yeah, but there, there the sounds the sound editing is a bit like it sounds like rough sex mm-hmm. in his in his lying ears and then when you see her version uh, it's only just distress and horror mm-hmm. and uh, and like that is very manipulative also like this is you know just the classic kind of incel or whatever uh, rapist logic like well she was kind of asking for it and you know i really loved her and maybe i overstepped a little bit because i was inflamed by passion and like well, that, all those lies that he would tell himself you see play out uh. like there's a scene after where pierre delson has him in and he's like drink that drink the whole thing and then he like tells him this and legree's explaining this to him and pierre's like looking at him weird like uh, like dude and he's like well you know she did the customary protest but she's a lady like and it's like like okay let's yeah no kind of means yes sometimes uh, she told me to get the fuck out of her house i continued it i I don't know but like what what i'm trying to get back to is is that like when i when i viewed that scene it was very hard to watch emotionally but like i i saw it very clearly and i knew if i was a lawyer if i was a lawyer for karu I, I could have won that case where it's yeah. like, because in both versions, never once does like Marguerite ever say like, yes, you know, like it never drops, you know, like yeah. she's the only words that you hear her say are no, stop, yeah. please don't. It's yeah. just like the pitch that he's changed around. But if I were a lawyer, I would be like, well, that's what she said, you know? And yeah. 
um, you, you've said that's what she said, you know? Yeah. And sir, at any time, did she say yes? At any time was she seduced, you know? Uh, was there any, yeah. any moment, like, in that moment, you know, where she capitulated yeah. to you? And the answer was no, because that's, you know, it's, it's, it's what happened. He raped her. I, I think it's just also a testament to, of like, Marguerite's courage. And, and we had the privilege of seeing it through a movie, you know, hundreds mm. of years after the fact, after this case has been studied, perhaps by like French lawyers, you know, themselves in a court of law. It, it's a it's an iconic case for criminal, you know, for criminal cases. It is based on the real story and it's a rather well documented story mm -hmm. because, for example, well, there's the, the proceedings at the Palais de Justice. Uh, there's also the lawyer of Jacques Legris, who kept her notes about the case and also about his own misgivings mm -hmm. <laughs> about his client. Like he thought Jacques Legris guilty, guilty um, as hell. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I think yeah. that yeah, it was it, it. It's pretty cool. So like, there are five known accounts uh, of mm. of the entire trial by combat, and um, the one that um, Jaeger picked was a chronicler who wasn't at the duel itself, but um, essentially did the first criminal case study in, in French, like in recorded like French history, because he wrote it in French, he didn't write it in Latin. Um, yeah. But all the testimonies were given in Latin too. So there's this really, it's, it's a special case because language wise, it's preserved. You know, um, it, we don't really speak Latin today, but it, many people, can read and understand Latin still. It's still very much yeah. used in our societies. Um, do you want to get into maybe the truth of the matter, of uh, what's going to decide? Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So so Marguerite's chapter is called uh, The Truth. The Truth. And so there's partly her perspective of the same events. Mm -hmm. There's also her real insistence also at the Palais de Justice that this really was what happened and that was actually taken as uh, kind of supporting evidence almost mm -hmm. like it's so crazy that she would maintain this that it's probably true yeah because otherwise you wouldn't do that because it's too risky basically uh, also because initially the case would have to come before the court of the local counts uh, Ben Affleck, mm -hmm. uh, who who obviously makes you lose when you show up there right. with, with your accusation. So then, you know, then they escalated uh, to the court in Paris. What else is there about her perspective that is really important in the context? I suppose one of them was their inability to conceive as a couple. Mm -hmm. like that, that comes up a couple of times. And what I thought was very interesting, and I don't know if that's how they saw it at the time, but they were doing a little bit of sex ed. Mm -hmm. and, and kind of, uh, I guess they thought, well, f for a woman to conceive, she has to orgasm. Yes. Very progressive. <laughs> I thought, yeah. yeah. That was interesting. <laughs> like, awesome. oh, do, you, do you get the uh, petit mort and, uh, you know, do you <laughs> kind of know what to do? Because that's very, I was like, wow, this is very, <laughs> very modern. I, I, I think so, too. And, like, the, I think they were, like, trying to also, like, help her, too, with the language that they were using of just, like, if by our logic in the medieval system, a woman can only conceive when she orgasms, if she's, you know, taken care of, mm -hmm. um, that, then then this rape, you know, it, it really had to be rape, you know, because, like, yeah. 
she's maintaining that she does so with her husband because she's loyal and she loves him. And it couldn't happen with Legree because he's gross and, you know, licentious. There's a really interesting uh, also um, kind of undercurrent where uh, like the, the marriages and the pairings are mm-hmm. for the purpose of procreation. So the right stallion has to mount the right mare. And that's also kind of shown in the film, obviously. Yeah. Then right, like, so like they're they're trying to they're trying their hand at horse breeding, and then the wrong stallion tries to mount a mare, <laughs> and obviously they're a little bit heavy-handed in the symbolism. I was going to say, uh, yeah, that was yeah. some that was some very Ridley Scott symbolism of just like <laughs> this is what's going to happen. <laughs> like, but I I thought it was um I thought what was so special about Marguerite's chapter was what's not in the book, and that's her as a person yeah. who she was yeah. and. Yeah. She's smart and resourceful. She's kind. She helps out everybody. She's demanding when she needs to be. You know, yeah. she stands up for herself. She's yeah. a fighter. And I think that's like what makes her story and her testimony so special. At least like in the book, I think, you know, you get the sense that like uh, Jean de Caru didn't view her as property. He really, I think on some level, they really loved each other and that they wanted to do this for each other because if my loved one, like that, in that sense, you know, uh, if you're married and that's what we're supposed to view each other as, if that happened to them, it it would be as bad as it happening to me. But I wouldn't put it in the way that Matt Damon put it, where he's just like, he's like, why does this always happen to me? Yeah, but yeah. He, like this is also where his his impulsivity uh, really true. endangers Marguerite, yeah. right? Because like he thinks, okay, we're going to do a trial by combat and we'll just fight to the death. And then he forgot to mention. And by the way, when I lose, <laughs> that that means that God has decided that you are not raped. Therefore, you've purged yourself. And by the way, then you will burn at the stake. God. So I better win this duel, otherwise we're both dead. Yeah. And he kind of forgot to mention that little detail, so that really raises the stakes also in the story. Oh, by the way, oh, you're gonna be burned alive, and uh, like my family will be decimated. But yeah, we're gonna do this, babe. Gonna, uh, I'll fight for Let's your go. honor. Yeah, <laughs> and I think like yeah. uh, she's very much like I know you're fighting for yourself, but yes. just remember, Jackass, like, uh, like you you gotta win, you you gotta yes. win, John. <laughs> like, I don't you know. Win this one, champ, or we're both fucked. Yeah, <laughs> it was actually really incredible in the history of the duel. Uh, we, like, so we can talk about the the trial by combat itself. Um, like yeah, so do, do you want to do, I guess we haven't, did we say how it ends? Maybe spoiler alert. Uh, I guess now we're moving into what actually happens yeah. at the duel. So if, you, if you're still going to watch the film, then uh, here come the spoilers. So the yeah, here, here comes, here's the duel. Well, um, a bit of a, a, a setup is that like, um, I know it's called The Last Duel because it's a very Hollywood title, very romantic. Um, yeah. But in in real life, they were actually called trial by combats. And they were somewhat common in court. (sighs) When they get to the Supreme Court, they're essentially like, we know she's telling the truth, but there's no way to tell Pierre that, you know, he's too powerful. Like, he's too rich. It's just going to get swept under. 
here's what we can do. So the lawyers essentially advocated God should decide this. And I think uh, it kind of leads into this nugget of French culture that I've always been interested in, which is like the fascination of like Parisian tourism and its history. Mm. So why do I say this? Because essentially Charles VI has the final say. He can yeah. he can stop this whole thing right now, you know, um, but he wants these big WWE bucks coming into Paris. <laughs> the rumble. Yeah, the, the rumble, the rumble yeah. of a century. I mean, like, uh. but this is at this time when the case is occurring, it's it's becoming an international scandal. Like he's hearing yeah. this shit out of Damascus, like his captains yeah. are writing him being like, uh, what's going on in Normandy? I heard like yeah, yeah, and in the in the description of the duel, mm-hmm. they also say well, thousands of people came to watch both French and Normans. Yeah, so sort of culturally, they would also they were considered sort of distinct, right? And so there were these these Norman tourists basically who came to Paris to watch this match. Not only to watch the match, but like they hired architects to build the arena. They had mm-hmm. uh, the barons, the Norman barons had their own architects brought in because they wanted their own stands. They wanted to have the best view. It just did wonders for the Parisian economy. And <laughs> not to mention the fact that this duel occurred um not 5 days after Christmas, which is like has always been and will always be the biggest economic you know page turner uh like well and and the days between christmas and new year's eve right mm-hmm. now we also don't have anything to do so we're watching netflix sitting at home why not you know, if there's a good match to watch i'll go check it out sure hey babe <laughs> i know like i got really bad seat but i got tickets to the legree and carouge fight what am i gonna wear So, of course, Legree and Carouge are decked out in the finest plate armor, um, yeah. get to wear all of it. Legree is knighted that day. Exactly. Yeah, this, this was, of course, a big worry. Like, what mm-hmm. if Legree wins and then a squire beats a knight? Oh, That's embarrassing. Yeah, no, very no, they're embarrassing. They're going to be at equal, in equal stations otherwise. So, again, like, they're representatives of these stations, mm-hmm. more so than just private individuals. Right. And so, they, yeah, he had to be knighted, otherwise it could be embarrassing for the whole system. So, they're, it's called, like, the Holy Trinity, and essentially they're given um, javelins uh, for the joust. Yeah. And yeah. They're, they're supposed to joust each other off their horses. If you don't die, yeah. you know, battle axes. Um, and then uh, long swords, swords, short swords, daggers. These two made it all the way to daggers. Like, yes, it was. They had to, uh, right? Like the, I I guess the the way it kind of went is that you just first, it's just like physical blunt force, clung, 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 until like one of them falls over and then they might still not be wounded. And then they had these really narrow daggers called the Misericordia, which was was narrow enough to get somewhere between the plate armor. So then finally you could mess up the other guy. Uh, Ridley Scott does a really good job of like, just kind of amping you up to see this, you know, and like, like, 
I, I think the only thing I was kind of disappointed in seeing, but I could understand. The helmets. The helmets. The helmets. Yeah, they didn't have it. <laughs> God damn it. Yeah, damn it. Yeah, so they did something really annoying, which is that they had these helmets where they still want to show. Who's who? You know, so you who's can't, who. Yeah. So they had the visor and then half of the visor removed. Uh, annoying. They could have had such cool helmets also. <laughs> like it, I kind of looked what the fashion was at the time. And this is the time where they had these uh, these helmets that when they were closed, was kind of like a pig snout or a dog mm-hmm. face. And it just looks awesome. Like I wish they had done that. And then because we were kind of trained in the livery of the different actors, right? Like the, uh, the Carouge, they are mm-hmm. red, obviously. And Le Gris. It's gray. kind of green, <laughs> yeah, well, gray, but then the, like the, the shield is green oh, yeah. with a snake. So the branding w- should have been enough, and then we could have seen the actual period uh, armor. So they're literally, like, beating themselves to death. Everyone's mm-hmm. losing their minds because Legree gets the upper hand. Um, yes. And absolutely just stabs the shit out of uh, Matt Damon's thigh, like, just with that special dagger as you're describing the one no. that can slip through the plates totally gets them right in the thigh by the way also very symbolic like he almost castrates him oh <laughs> i didn't even think about right. that that's really uh, oh and it would have like spoken because he's like constantly being cuffed in the movie <laughs> like, that's right yeah yeah, yeah good job. but it, it the tide turns he overcomes legree yeah. and they're wrestling on the ground in the account, in the in the count itself, he's like trying desperately to stab him through his helmet. Mm-hmm. But like we said, these guys are plated, and they're plated yeah. very nicely. <laughs> he essentially like breaks the latch open, yeah. and it yeah. says that Legree's mask falls open, and he's about to go in for the kill. And Legree goes, "In the name of God, and on the damnation of my own mortal soul, I swear to you, to Christ, I did not do this." If that, if that was going to be, like, my last word, you know, like, I don't know. I kind of, I, I would have hoped that he would have either confessed, but it adds this, like, very um, human element. Yeah, but I think I think he th- he generally thought he was innocent. Yeah, that's the, that's the thing, I think too, he yeah. thought I think he thought, well, it wasn't rape. She was actually into me because in his chapter, mm-hmm. they're also kind of flirting with each other. But they talked and, about and books, Rutger. You can't, you can't just like... Yeah, but, uh, yeah, but <laughs> in a very sensual kind of way. Oh, she okay. was clearly into him. And this was just rough sex. And so there was nothing to confess. He was clearly innocent. It was over. Like, the duel was over. And I loved the shot of... Um, Notre Dame? Oh, yeah. Like, him being... Uh, but I like it because it's it, it brings that image that we just said, where it's like, he's being replaced by mm-hmm. by a new order a new like ecclesiastical yeah. order of his world you know the paris that jean de Carreau fought in doesn't even really exist anymore you know mm-hmm. and i thought like what a telling symbol that like you know something that we regard today as ancient was like being built like mm-hmm. it had been started up maybe in the past like 30 years you know and yeah. it, it 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 was kind of symbolic to me too because um it, the the construction for Notre Dame must have began when Marguerite and um and Carouge were very young so like um in the in the book he's in his 40s Legree's in his 40s which meant that like construction on it began 
and it's still going on. And Marguerite had been born and she was like in her twenties. So, and it was still going on, right. The construction of this. And I just thought that it was like a very interesting and telling shot just because it's like, wow, Paris is still like building. Right. Like Mm -hmm. it it just brought this like otherworldly kind of sense to it, you know, of just like the overall theme of, of what we could say the last duel was about, which is like, the test of time and how truth truth stands the test of time. I think that's what I got from it. That was like my main takeaway. And that, um, because of like, because of, because of brave individuals like Marguerite who had this horrible thing occur to them, but had the strength of character, you know, to persevere, to believe in themselves. And to more or less like um, relinquish that belief to somebody else—that's a huge amount of trust. You know, that's a—it's very brave. She's a very, very brave woman, and I'm—I'm I'm really, really happy that this particular annal of history, that this story turned out the way it did. I—I I of course like grieve for what happened to her, and I think it's terrible. But yeah. I think this whole thing really brought about. Um, it, it really shot. It, it sh- must have been a little therapeutic as well. A little bit, yeah. <laughs> for her to for her to watch and see Jean win. Mm-hmm. I like that. He's probably probably kind of satisfying in the end, also. I think so too, and I think the way like Ridley Scott chose for him to like stab him was also really um, symbolic and yet like satisfying because he yeah. like like I said he gives this like very like very human you know like ah please like you're my friend like no and the guy's just like whatever dude choke on your words i just thought when he was stabbed through the mouth that it was like very it was very uh, deliberate you know it's intentional of the of the director to do that so I, i think it's like what you were saying i think literally in his mind and by like what we were saying the the written rules of the day this is what this is what you're supposed to do you know like he 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 watched too many movies. Uh, he read too many too much Ovid. Um, yeah, and uh, I I don't think the cheeky cheeky Latin poetry. Yeah. of course, is the downfall of of good behavior. You just have to do that. I'm going to start doing that now. If I'm ever like uh, flirty with someone, I'm just going to like go up to them and put my knee up on the table and just like stand there and see. What <laughs> <laughs> and so, recite some Ovid. Yeah, there you go. And then, but I'm I'm just like. One of one of the things that I think too is dangerous about that, and it can kind of speak to today, is that you know when we when we read something we don't understand, you know, because it's like he's literate, he's educated, but does he really understand what he's reading? You know, mm. does he does he really have that kind of knowledge? You know, and it, I I would think mm. that the answer would be because so few of them had it. No, you know, so it's mm. like when you read something you don't understand. And then you try and practice it. Um, these horrifying crimes happen, you know, because yeah. of your entitled ignorance, you know, to yeah. uh, to your life around you, you know, because it's it's like we said, it's not so much the fact that like men are horrible and you just like want to oppress and abuse us, but it's more of um, you're living by codes of law and ideology and that can have this 
horrific influence on on how you live your life and the choices that you make in your life. And uh, but on the other side, you know, where you have something as gross and deplorable as uh, Legree, you have a, an equal kind of virtue, you know, found in Marguerite. And I think she's supposed to represent France in a way, you know, mm. like, yeah. And um, liberté, vérité, et, et fraternité. Yeah. So, yeah. yay, yeah. the last duel. Yeah. yeah. We did it. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good take. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, do you want to wrap it up? Sure thing. Awesome. Okay. Well, uh, well. Thanks, Mallory. This was super fun. <laughs> and uh, thanks for a great conversation. And uh, let's do it again. Of course. Yeah. Anytime. Thank you. Okay. Uh, well, thanks everybody for listening. And bye bye. Bye, everyone. See you soon. <laughs>